uh, we're in the middle of a series on love, right? And, and, and love, um, love is important. Love, love should be a big part of who we are as Christians. Um, and, and, and so we've been going through this sermon, and we've been looking specifically uh, at this, this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In fact, we've got uh, an awesome illustration here by the, the wickedly talented DJ Phillips. He's over, he's over there. He drew that. He, I think he actually painted it. Eh? Is that right? Kind of painted it. Yeah, he gave me like the slight nod, like the, don't talk about me, but yep. Um, but we won't, we won't embarrass him anymore. But, but we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and today, tonight, uh, I want to talk to you about an idea. I've, I've, I've titled the sermon called A Position of Love, right? What does it mean to, to, to work through our lives, to, to operate out of a position of love? So what we're going to do is we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, then I'm going to pray, and then all havoc will break loose. So turn to me, uh, turn to me. Hello, I'm me. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we'll have it on the screen behind me as well. Boom, see that? I threw it. Uh, but we're going to go along with this. It says, you might have heard it before, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith. It is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Why don't you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. God, I thank you for the opportunity to, to gather together and to, to open up the Bible, to look at it, what it is you want to say to us, God. God, we choose to put aside our weeks. We choose to put aside whatever might be distracting us or holding us back or, or hardening our hearts at this moment. And we choose to, to make this next 30 minutes about you, to turn our attention to you and to, to listen to what it is that you want to say, God. We thank you that you're always speaking, God. You're always with us. You're always moving, God. But right now, we choose to focus on you. We don't want to miss this moment, God. And so we pray that we would leave here different than when we came in, God, that you would speak something new to us so you would confirm something you've been saying to us, God. But whatever it is that our, our hearts wouldn't be left the same, God, that we wouldn't harden them, that we wouldn't protect ourselves, but that we'd take this opportunity in this moment to be vulnerable with you. Amen? Awesome. Some things in life, that the harder you try, the harder they get, right? I, I think that loving people is like that sometimes. Right, loving people can kind of be this idea of, of, of you, you want to love them, and you want to be nice to them, and, and you want to be kind, and you want to be patient, and you want to be like how 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says we should be, but maybe the more that you try, the harder sometimes it gets. Has anyone ever tried to put together flat pack furniture? So, so what I'm talking about is, does anyone know of the store Ikea? We don't have it in New Zealand, right? But, but Ikea furniture is mirrored at the warehouse. Has anyone ever been to the warehouse? Right, if you have not been to the warehouse, you're missing out on a world full of bargains. But at the warehouse, there, there is such a thing as flat pack furniture, and they trick you because you go into the warehouse and you see something beautiful on display. You're like, that looks like it would fit perfectly in my lounge, and it's only $13.99, right? Bargain, I'm going to get it. Doesn't matter if I can only sit on it once, it will be fantastic. Right, and so you go up and you, and you get it and you talk to the person, and you're like, I would like to get that. And they're like, sure thing. And they come out with a, just a square, thin box. You're like, that does not look like a chair. It looks like a square, thin box. Like, ah, it's just self-assembly, super easy. Right, I remember when, when Emma and I first got married, we, we moved into our first house and we needed a little bit more furniture. We didn't have any furniture, which is why we needed a little bit more. Right, and so what we got is we got these boxes. And they're basically a box on top of another box, but they're attached to each other and they're made out of plywood. Right, and so I said, babe, don't worry. I'm, I'm super good at building things, by the way. Like, I am amazing. I just finished building a freestanding, uh, like, coat rack out of pipes. 
great, right? Fantastic, best thing you've ever seen. But I, I went to put together this box thing, right? And, and so I got out my toolkit, which I was actually given as a wedding present. I was like, yeah, it's going to be awesome. I had two toolkits now because I'm Superman, right? And, and I'm like, I'm going to put this together. It's super easy. All it needs is screws, right? I don't need to, don't need to cut anything. don't need to hammer anything. It's going to be fantastic. And, and so I put it on one side, which is just the only side, so that's pretty easy to do. And then I put it on the bottom, and that, that was fine. Then I, I put it on the other side, and then I went to put it on the top, but it wouldn't quite fit. I was like, oh, man, this seems to be a little weird. So I took off one of the sides, and, and I put it on that side, but then the other side kind of popped off. I'm like, oh, this is weird. So then I took off the top, and I put back on the top, and then the bottom popped off. And slowly, I was just trying to put it together, and the more and more I tried to put it together, slowly the plywood started to warp, right? And slowly, the more and more I screwed it, trying to get it to, there was just a little gap down the back, right? And I was being a perfectionist. I was like, it can't be a gap. Like, my house has to be awesome. So I'm trying to screw it together, and just slowly but surely, it's warping, and then the whole thing splinters, right? See, and the harder and harder I tried to put this thing together, the more quickly it seemed to deteriorate. The more I tried to make it work, the more it fell apart. See, love can be like that. Loving people can be like that. The more we try to be patient, the less patient sometimes we can get. The more we try and rejoice, uh, when the more we try we not, uh, the more we try to not rejoice about injustice, the harder it gets to not keep records of being wronged against. Right? Some of these things in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 are hard to do at the same time. How do you not rejoice about injustice and yet not keep record of wrongs against you? But God, I'm trying to not rejoice in injustice. That's why I'm keeping record of every single thing they ever did wrong to me. Right, and so, so what can we do? Because at the same time, loving Jesus can be like that, right? We can come into a relationship with Jesus and we can choose to try and follow him. We're like, man, I'm gonna follow you, Jesus. This is gonna be amazing. And we're following after him. And as we're following after him, I don't know if it happened to you, but slowly things start to become exposed within you that you're like, maybe this isn't so much in the character of who I should be if I'm following Jesus. And so you're like, God, I wanna, I wanna change this. But then we try and we put our mind to it and we put all our will into it and we try and change it. And then it doesn't quite change or it changes for a bit and then we fall backwards. And we're like, Jesus, I'm meant to be loving you, but it seems the harder I try and love you, the more aware I am of the fact that I really suck at loving you. See, I think love is one of these things where the harder we try, the harder it gets. So tonight I want to look at that, that feeling of the harder I try, the more I break things. The harder I try, the more things seem to fall apart. And I'd like to start by, by looking at the most famous dinner party ever. It's called the Last Supper, right? And it's called the Last Supper because it was the final meal that Jesus had with his 12 disciples before he died on the cross. It's the final time that they sit down and they break bread. And these men, Jesus' 12 disciples, they believe that Jesus is the political savior, that he's come to take the Jewish people and to restore the nation of Israel as a national kingdom, that no longer will they be living enslaved to the Romans, which is where they are at the moment, but that they'll be a people again, that they'll have their own kingdom, they'll have their own king, they'll have their own power, that they'll be free, right? They expected him to somehow overthrow Rome and restore their nation. And given that, Rome weren't too excited about this idea. They quite enjoyed having a nation of people, in fact, many nations of people under their thumb. And the idea of one rising up was dangerous about that one, but also could start a chain reaction. So they weren't too enthused about Jesus. And at the same time, there was a whole bunch of Pharisees and teachers of the law who weren't really enthused on the whole Jesus actually bringing the gospel to the world as opposed to just the religious institution that they'd been in. So we have this, this tumultuous, that's an excellent word, we have, this, we have this crazy bubbling situation going on where everyone's just hating on Jesus. And so what happens is in chapter 13 of John, 
John describes what's happening at the end of the meal. And we're going to read uh, this from the New King James Version because uh, sometimes I like to sound like I'm Tupac. That is true, but also because it, it, it captures something. We'll see, right? You'll find a word within it when we're reading. You'll be like, that's a weird word. That's the word we want. So turn with me uh, to John chapter 13, and we're going to read from verses 21 to 26. It's going to be behind me again. Look at that. I'm really good at that. I'm not really good at that. You're really good at that. But anyway, it goes like this. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This is him talking to his disciples at the Last Supper. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. He's motioning to Jesus. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he whom I shall give a piece of bread to when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. You might have noticed when we were reading through that, there was a few weird words. The first weird word was bosom. I'm not sure about you, but bosom is not a word I use in most everyday conversation. Uh, you might, and you know, you do yours, but I don't. Right? And in fact, when it's mentioned here, it's mentioned both Jesus' bosom and Jesus' breast. Now, I don't know about you, but as a man, I do not like to think of myself as having a breast. I like to think of this as a chest and a finely sculpted one at that. If someone was to come up to me and say, hey, Jono, nice breast, I would say, excuse me, sir slash madam, this is a chest. Thank you very much. But see, what's going on here is, is there's something being captured here that's important to our story. See, in plain English, this was Jesus' chest, this bosom, this breast. This was his chest. That rhymed. Right? But... But in Jewish, I told you I was going to rap, but in Jewish culture, in, in Jewish culture, this is something more. See, in, in Jewish culture, these terms of referring to someone leaning on someone's bosom or someone leaning on someone's breast were symbolic of care, fellowship, and intimacy. See, back then, people ate at low tables. The tables were about yay high, and you sat on the ground to eat at them, and, and everyone reclined on cushions as they were eating. And so what's going on here is the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John. John refers to himself like that a lot. Um, but he's basically leaning on Jesus as they ate, which is weird, right? Today, if you were at a dinner party and, and your boy leaned over and just kind of rested on your chest while you guys were munching on chicken wings, you'd be like, um, excuse me, this is a gross invasion of my personal space. Can you please move off of me and not lean on my chest? But see, in biblical times, this was a sign of close friendship. This is what they did. If you were mates with someone and you were eating a meal, you'd just lean on their chest, right? Don't judge. It's Jesus and John, right? Leave them be. But see, what's going on here is as they're, as they're eating this meal together, Jesus drops this bombshell. He says that one of, one of the disciples, one of this close-knit group of people is going to betray him. And see, just hours earlier, all of the disciples had promised to stay faithful to Jesus no matter what, even if it meant death. It says this in, in Mark chapter 14, verses 27 to 31. I'm reading NLT because it was just too hard to do New King James the whole time. But it says this, On the way, Jesus told them, All of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter said to him, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. 
Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times that you even know me. No, Peter declared emphatically. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the others vowed to do the same. See, of all the disciples, Peter tends to be the one who talks the most. I could never understand growing up why I identified with Peter so much until I realized that he talked the most. Right, but what's going on here is he's saying, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. And he means it. Right, he really means it. But a few hours later when Jesus is arrested and when he's taken and all the disciples flee, Peter denies Jesus three different times, just as Jesus says he would. Right now, if we jump to the end of the story, right, we start with the Last Supper. This is where we start, and the end is Jesus on the cross. If we jump to the end, this is what happens. It's, it's in John chapter 19, verses 25 to 27, and we see Jesus on the cross. It says this, standing near the cross with Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, which is a good name, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, that's John, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to his disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, the disciple took her into his home. See, at the end, John is right at the foot of the cross. At the end, John is there. The Bible doesn't tell us where the rest of the disciples were except for Peter. It tells us that that Peter is noticeably absent. It says in the Bible, after betraying Jesus for the third time, we read in Luke chapter 22, that when he remembered what Jesus had told him, Peter went out and whipped bitterly. Right, so here we have, we're we're at the end, we start with Jesus saying, one of you is going to betray me. All of them before that say, we would never, ever, ever leave you. And we end with John at the foot of the cross, the other disciples, who knows where, and Peter out in a field crying. See, I don't know about you, I I don't want to be judgmental, but this wasn't the best time for a pity party. Right, if ever Jesus was going to need someone at his side, if ever Jesus was going to need someone to be loyal, if ever he was going to need his friendship from his disciples, it was now. And Peter, who has sworn his faithfulness to Jesus in front of all of them, who's sworn it more often than anyone else, is nowhere to be found. See, it seems that the more Peter tried, the worse things got. It seems that maybe this problem we have of how do we love when the more that we try to love, how do we live life, how do we follow Jesus when the harder we try and love Jesus, the harder we try and follow Him, how do we love others when the more that we try, so often the worse things get. Maybe that's not just a problem that we've had. Maybe this is a problem that we can turn to the Bible and find a solution. See, so what was it, what was it about John? Right. What was it about John that led him to be, as far as we know, the only disciple at the foot of the cross? And what was it about Peter that ended up sabotaging him? After all, both John and Peter loved Jesus. Both John and Peter wanted to do right by Jesus. Why is John remembered for being at the cross and Peter is remembered for denying Jesus publicly? What is different about their journey? See, the answer to these questions, I think, can inform how we can approach Jesus so that we don't try harder and things fall apart more. But maybe that we can do things a different way. Maybe we can do things a way that works. See, if we go, to, go back to the scene in John, if we go back to chapter 13, to that last supper, when, when I read this passage, I don't know about you, but when I read most of the Bible, maybe it's because I watched far too much Thomas the Tank Engine growing up, but when I read the Bible, it plays out like a movie for me. 
right? It plays out like a scene for me, and it kind of comes alive. And I think that's a part of the awesome way that the Bible is written. And if it doesn't do that for you yet, find a different translation because that helps a lot. Sometimes it's hard to have the Bible come alive when you're trying to figure out what whom and whoeth means. But, but just keep on reading as well. Don't, don't let, so often I think people let the, the verse and the chapter mark stop them. They're like, oh, I'm getting into the story, and then I finish the chapter. I have to put the Bible down now. It stinks. Just keep on going. That's why I like the message, because I can't tell where I'm at. I just keep on going. Right? But, but what's happening here is if we read this like a movie, we, we'd think that maybe Judas is one of the key characters here. Right? Because it makes sense. Judas is the one who's going to betray Jesus. Judas is the one who the suspicion is cast on. But actually, if we read it, we see that the focus really is on Jesus, Peter, and John. You'll notice that the camera zooms in on them more than once. See, Jesus says that someone in the room is going to betray him, and they all gasp, right? They start to panic, and they start to, to look around at each other, because that's what you do if someone in the room is going to kill the other one. You look around at, like, maybe who in this room could it be, right? And so they're looking around at each other, and this, the camera starts to get a close-up of John, and it shows him lounging on Jesus' chest, just being like, mm, I'm good, right? And then it cuts to Peter. And, and Peter is, is probably doing what I know I would do and what most of us would do. Peter is, is getting frantic, and he's looking around people, and he starts to, to monitor them, starts to, to figure out who the bad guy is. My guess is that his motions would probably involve a lot of pointing. Jesus, is it him? Is it him? Jesus, is it, is it, Jesus, is it me? Right, he's starting to, to get involved. He's starting to get worked up. That would be classic Peter, wouldn't it? That would be what I would do in that situation. See, danger is imminent, and Peter is up in arms. Peter has to do something. Peter has to find out who the traitor is. Peter has to fix things. I can relate to that. If something was going wrong, if I was in that room, I would not be leaning on Jesus' chest. I would be standing up trying to figure out what's going on. I'd be taking people's pulses. Are you lying? Are you lying? Is it you? Do you have a knife? Right, but it's just like Peter to jump up and do something. Because when, when painful things happen, my knee-jerk reaction, when painful things come into my life, it isn't to lie around like John. It's not to lax back and just be all right with it. My reaction is to jump up. Peter is active. Peter is working. Peter is striving. Because what is John's problem? Right? Who does John think he is? Jesus is hurting here. Jesus has just said that one of his 12 best friends is going to betray him, and you're lying on his chest. Like, do you not have any empathy? Can you not at least sit up so he can finish his sentence without you crushing his ribcage? If I was Peter, I'd be like, John, get off of him. We need to do something. But there John is, lying on Jesus. And who's at the foot of the cross? It's not Peter. John. John is the only one mentioned at the foot of the cross. Peter is painfully absent. See, here's my point. John understood what it meant to live in the love of Jesus. He knew how to rest his head on Jesus' heart, even when chaos and uncertainty and fear were all around him. He was the disciple who Jesus loved. That's what he called himself. That's how he thought of himself. That's who he was to John. John was the disciple who Jesus loved. He saw himself as Jesus' favorite. And he didn't mind what anyone else thought. He just knew that he was defined by Jesus' love. The love of Jesus was his identity. It was his focus. It was his priority. He didn't seem to think that he had to fix everything. He knew that security and strength were not found in his effort, 
but were found in relying and resting in Jesus' love. See, it's interesting to note that it wasn't just Peter who didn't live up to his vow to be loyal. Right? And in fact, the Bible says that all of the disciples made the same promise. That included John. John promises to never leave Jesus. John promises to, to die with Jesus if he needs to, and he doesn't. John, at some stage, does flee. Jesus is on his own at some stage. So John made this promise and broke it. But what is it about John? What is it about his relationship with Jesus that went deeper than his promises and his performance? That went deeper than his ability to, to be good enough? to keep on going, to do what he said he would do, to not fall into a pit of shame, to not come under a, a burden of guilt. What is it about John that enabled him to overcome his failures almost instantly and rush back to Jesus' side when it counted the most? See, I think it was love. But I, I would say, based on reading John's writings, it wasn't John's love for Jesus. It wasn't, man, I have to rush back to you, Jesus, because I love you so much. I, I have to rush back to you, Jesus, because I'm such a good friend, because you need my love. I think it was Jesus' love for John. Jesus, I have to come back to your side because I know that you want me there. I know that you'll forgive me for leaving you. I know that, that you don't mind that I broke. You don't mind that I have weakness. You don't mind that I make mistakes. You see all those things and you love me with them. Jesus, I have to come back to your side because I know that that's where you'd want me and you won't be disappointed in me. You'll just be happy to see me even as you're on the cross. See, maybe it wasn't John's love for Jesus that brought him back, but it was Jesus' love for John that even in his weakness, even in his failures and his fear, John was able to return to the foot of the cross because his mind was more consumed with Jesus' love for him than his own love or lack of love for Jesus. See, Peter was missing in action because if our whole focus is how much we can do for God, how good we can be for God, how devoted we can be to Him, and how, how much we love Him, rather than how much He loves us, eventually we'll find ourselves in a pity party away from the cross. Eventually we'll find ourselves out in a field weeping bitterly that, man, I just couldn't be good enough, and that's the only reason Jesus would love me. Man, I just, I just couldn't fulfill it. I just couldn't make things work. I just couldn't keep my word when the going gets tough. I just had to break in. Now, the only reason that Jesus would love me is because I loved him. What would happen if we could stop approaching Jesus the way that maybe Peter is here and start approaching him the way that John is? Not defining our relationship by how much we can give to Jesus, by how good we can be, by the promises that we can keep, by the human effort that we can contribute, and instead focusing on the fact that Jesus loves us. Not to define Jesus by our love for Him, but to define ourselves by His love for us. See, it, it sounds so spiritual. It sounds so right to make flamboyant vows about commitment to God. Right? It feels good. It feels good to be in that worship moment, to be like, Jesus, I give you my everything. Jesus, I'm, I'm, I want to I go anywhere for you. Jesus, I would literally, literally die for you. Literally, God. Do you know what literally means? It means actually, like, God, for real, I would die for you. I would catch a grenade for you. I would throw my hand on the blade for you, Jesus. You know, I'd do anything for you. Start seeing grenade in the worship pit. It'd be awesome. Right, but, but that feels good. It feels good to make grandiose 
statements, to make vows. That's why we do it to each other so often. You know, you have that friend, and you're like, bro, I got your back for life, got your back forever, I'm never going to leave you. And then you're in, like, the playground at school or whatever, and a guy comes up to him, and you're like, bro, I just got to go over here for a minute. Right, you're like, oh, man, now we're going to be friends forever. All through, I had those friends in high school, right, I'm afraid to admit. And we're never, ever, ever, ever going to, like, go a day without talking, man. We're boys. We're boys. High school finishes, I'm like, oh, man, I haven't seen you for, like, a month. How about that? A year later, I'm like, bro, uh, that month, yeah, I'm a bad friend, right? It's confession time. I've gotten better a little bit. Anyway, <laughs> see, it's, it's not, I'll be often. I'll be often. I'll be honest. I'll be honest often. How about that? That's a good deal. I'll be honest. More often than not, I look a lot like Peter and a little like John. More often than not, I, I make these big spiritual commitments. I make these big vows and I make these big ideas, but my vows won't keep me at the foot of the cross. Only love will. And so often I, I end up looking a little bit like John, but a lot more like Peter. When things are good, I'm pretty good at leaning on Jesus. When things are going well, I'm pretty good at, at being with him. I'm pretty good at keeping my head on his chest, at, at dwelling in his love, at being like, man, church is good. This is a nice place to be. I feel good here. I feel in communion with God. I feel loved. This is a good place to be. But, but when painful news comes, when danger is in the mix, I want to jump off Jesus' chest and I want to fix things. See, it's not wrong to do what is in our power to make things right. I'm, I'm not advocating for laziness or, or a lack of responsibility. Lack of responsibility. Right, but, but what I'm saying is that our lives must start and end with a dependence on God. As soon as it becomes our ability to make things work, see, they must start and end in the love and the grace and the mercy of God. Everything else will flow from that, and it will flow from that well. Because God loves us. See, and there's not a cliche. It sounds like a cliche because cliches are things that have been said so often. But if it's always true, it can't be a cliche. Maybe it can, but I'm saying it can't. Right? Jesus loves us. God loves us. And it's a powerful, unchanging reality that we can build our lives on. See, sometimes I think what, what's most important to my success is my effort, my work, my ability to follow God. And those things are great. Right? Those things are important, but they're not enough to, to sustain us through the chaos and the craziness of life. My ability to stick at it, my, my awesomeness, my ability to have an unction, my ability to grip my teeth and get through things, my ability to solve problems, to say no to temptation, to keep on going. That's great, but it's not going to be enough to get me through the chaos of life. Only lovers. The only way we're going to make it over the long haul to do what seems is to do what seems so counterintuitive, to lean into Jesus' love, to sit with him, recline on him, and to trust in him when everything gets crazy. See, if I could just get the band up. Jesus says in, in Mark chapter 8, we're going to throw it up on the screen, it's verse 34. He says this, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? See here, Jesus is giving, is giving us an invitation to abundant life. Not just to existence, 
but to life that goes on, life that increases, life that, that goes on past death, yes, but also life that is bigger now, life that is more now. I think so often as Christians, we get things mixed up and we think that Christianity is only about life after death. See, Jesus invites us to life now and life bigger than we could ever have without it. We don't start living once we die. We start living once we trust. See, the only catch is, is that we do get life via death. Right? It's, it's, it's a paradox. Jesus was saying the way that we typically think about life and satisfaction and fulfillment is backwards. The way that we think things work, it doesn't work that way. When we, when we read passages like this, we often, I know I often inadvertently lie to myself. I end up thinking, okay, I just need to deny myself. I just need to, to deny myself. If I'm going to follow Jesus, if I'm going to find this life that he's talking about, then I have to deny myself. I have to take up my cross. I have to forget about myself and what I need and what I want. And I have to force myself to love God and to love people. Man, I'm going to have to get really good at pushing myself. Man, I'm going to have to get so good at making myself holy. Man, my effort is going to have to increase. And that sounds great. We might not think it does, but the way that we behave would seem that we think it sounds great. Because it sounds so spiritual. It sounds so self-sacrificial. We can feel like martyrs. We can feel important. We can feel holy because, man, I'm going to deny myself. Man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put myself second. Man, I'm going to, oh, it's going to be painful. Man, I can't wait for that pain. Man, people will respect me when they see me denying myself. Man, I'm going to have such spiritual cred on the streets. People are going to walk up to me like, bro, I saw you denied yourself yesterday. I'm going to be like, yeah, I did. Twice. They'll be like, oh, yeah. They're going to cross themselves at me. Right, but if I deny myself all by myself, I actually focus on myself more than ever. If I'm denying myself and it's all in my strength, then I'm actually emphasizing myself and emphasizing myself is inherently counterproductive. Emphasizing myself, self is the problem, not the solution. And when I deny myself through my strength, I'm actually amplifying myself. It's counterintuitive, but when it's all in me to control me, to contain me, to make me work, to make Jesus love me, to be good enough, to be great enough, to push forward enough that Jesus will love me, to earn God's love, it actually becomes all about me and not about God at all. I actually become the center of my religion. I become God again. See, the answer to living a selfless, sacrificial, loving, giving life is not gritting our teeth and making ourselves love more. The kind of, that kind of self-effort is doomed to failure. See, our desire to love generously and to live a good life is commendable, but if it's based on sheer willpower, it's not going to work long term. It's going to fall off the track somewhere. Somewhere we'll make a mistake and we won't be able to get back to it because it was all us. See, self-based change is really sustainable or substantial and it doesn't have the power to produce satisfaction or fulfillment in our lives. The point of this passage is not to try harder. The point of this passage is to shift our focus. If we're going to deny ourselves, if we're going to truly deny ourselves, if we're going to love and give and think about others first, then we have to be preoccupied and consumed with someone other than ourselves. It has to be about something 
more than this. See, notice the wording of Jesus' invitation here. He says, if you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That deny yourself portion, it's bookended by the word me. This isn't about us. And I don't know about you, but so often it's my tendency to make it about me. See, this is framed by a focus on Jesus. We're denying ourselves not in our ability, but in other words, if we are interested in Jesus, if we want to love Him and love like Him, if we want the abundant life that is found in Him, then we need to stop thinking about ourselves. And we need to focus on Him and His love for us. We need to go from being Peter, as great as Peter was and and as great a things as Peter did, Peter had to learn the lesson that John learned the first time, that it's not his love for Jesus that defines their relationship. It's Jesus' love for him. It's not our ability. Jesus said that if we try to hoard our lives for ourselves, we end up losing our lives. It's like trying to grasp air. We can't grab it. We can't sustain it. We can't keep it to ourselves, but we need it. See, we try to get stuff and get happiness and get satisfaction, but ironically, the more that we focus on ourselves, the more we lose our satisfaction, the more we lose our fulfillment, the more we lose our meaning. And when we become preoccupied and consumed and enamored and in love and obsessed with Jesus, we forget about what we want and when we want it and how we can get it. We lose our lives, but we actually find them. When our focus goes from us to Jesus goes from how can I make myself good enough? How can I push myself far enough? How can I keep on going just a little bit longer? And our focus changes to Jesus, I just love you. Jesus, I'm just so grateful that you did this for me. Jesus, I'm just so in love with the fact that you would call me, that you would love me no matter what. When our focus changes from us to Him, we lose our life, but we find it. We find it in a way that we could never, ever have had it before. We discover the fulfillment we desire when we stop trying to find it in and through ourselves. See, what is the motivation for giving up our lives? What is the motivation for loving God and for loving people? Is it because self-denial is noble and admirable and we should all be disciplined people? No, because that's never going to work. We lose our lives because we forget ourselves as we remember and we revel in the love of Jesus and who He is and what He has done for us. We lose sight of our urges, our desires and our wants. We lose sight of ourselves and we become obsessed with Him. And before we know it, we're living in satisfaction and fulfillment. Before we know it, we stay at the foot of the cross. Before we know it, we look around and we realize we've been brought back to the place we always needed to be. And maybe we didn't even intend to come back to Jesus. But before you know it, you make a mistake on Friday, but you just have to be in church on Sunday because you have to meet with Jesus again. Before you know it, your mistakes are no longer defining you, but lovers. And that's where change is. No longer in our strength, no longer in who we are, no longer in our mistakes or our lack of ability or our ability to be good enough, no longer in us, but we're defined in love. We're in a position of love. See, and tonight you might have walked in here and you might never have walked in these doors before. You might have walked in them a hundred times. But you might be here and you know that you're not in that position of love. 
that at the moment it's all in your ability. At the moment, you might not even have a relationship with Jesus. At the moment, you are going through the utterly painful process of having to be your own God. You're having to keep the stars in the sky. You're having to keep the world spinning. You're having to keep everyone happy. And you're having to keep yourself positive. You're having to stay all right every day. You're having to be the glue that holds the world together. And I know that place. We all know that place. We've been there. But if you're here tonight and you know that's you, and you don't want to be there anymore, the good news is, is there is another place to be. There's a place to be where you're not the one holding the stars in the sky. You're not the one who defines you anymore. You're not the one who brings meaning. You're not the one who breathes into your lungs anymore. You're not the one who keeps your heart beating, but someone bigger than you, someone greater than you, someone more loving and kind and generous than you could ever imagine, smiles on you every day and says, I made them for a reason. I love them unconditionally. So if you're here tonight, just as everyone bows their heads and closes their eyes, if you know that that's you, that for whatever reason you walked in here this, this evening and you're keeping everything together. You're making things work. You're your own God. You might have made a decision once before, but somewhere along the line, something just happened. Drift just happened and all of a sudden you found that you were having to keep everything going again. If you're here tonight and that's you and you want to make a decision to say, God, I need you back in my life. Things are too tough without you. Things are wrong without you. There's a hole in my heart that I need you to fill again. If that's you here tonight and you want to make that decision, in a moment, I just want to ask you to raise your hand. And you're not doing anything special by raising your hand other than letting yourself and letting me know that today you're making a decision. And that's pretty important. And then we're going to pray a prayer. And the words aren't magical, but your heart's intent is. Basically, all we're going to say is, God, I need you in my life. I'm sorry for trying to do it on my own. Thank you for accepting me. I love you. I choose to follow you today. So if you're here tonight and you know that you need to make that decision, that life isn't working without God in it, I just want you to raise your hand now. Awesome. Awesome. I see that hand. Thank you. We're just going to give it a little bit longer. If you're here tonight and you want to make this decision, whether you've made it before,